Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to the Hubble Skeptic Podcast. I'm Shane Rosenthal. And on this episode, we're airing part two of a conversation I had with Dr. Mike Farley of Covenant Theological Seminary on why we should trust the Bible. Because this exchange took place at a public forum, Mike and I were able to interact with questions from the live audience, which you'll hear on this program. I apologize in advance if some of the audience questions are difficult to hear. I did try to amplify them in the editing process, but some will be harder to hear than others, particularly if you're listening to this while driving. By the way, if you have a question for the show, I'd love to try to tackle it on a future episode. You can either email it to me at info at humbleskeptic.com, or you can ask me the question in your own voice using the voice memo feature of your smartphone. Well, more about that later. Now here's the second part of my conversation with Dr. Mike Farley on why we should trust the Bible. One of the things I think we should say here is that when it comes to worldview options, nobody's really neutral, are they? You know, you can have a referee with the black and white stripes on the football game, and yeah. you can, you know, they do a pretty good job overall. They're not necessarily for the Chiefs, not for the 49ers. They're <laughs> making a call based on objective criteria. And if you saw one of them wearing the Chiefs hat, it might give you concerns, right? Well, when it comes to refereeing the different worldview options in a pluralistic culture, nobody can sort of take off the hat. Nobody can keep from taking off that. We come from a particular worldview. And so you're born with certain worldview assumptions. So if you're coming from a polytheistic Hindu background, you might have trouble with the idea of the monotheism that Jesus is espousing. And if you come from a secularist anti-supernatural background, you might have a problem with the miracles. So we can't all be right. And that's why I argue that we should recover this idea of a healthy skepticism. And I find that in the Bible everywhere, we shouldn't believe every silly idea, right? We should be discerning. Do you think we need to reemphasize those categories or am I going too far with this? 
No, no. I actually just want to pick up on what you were saying earlier there as well, that I think that a better way to think about making our faith relevant to our neighbors, rather than only trying to stress the way in which religion can touch our sort of inner experience. So rather than only saying Christianity will give you meaning and purpose and guidance and love and and experiential things, thinking even back to those college students, I'd want to say everyone's religious. Right. Everyone has beliefs. Religions answer a, a set of big questions. There's a big set of ultimate questions that all major views of the world have to grapple with. Uh, where did everything come from? Uh, what does it mean to be a human being? What's wrong with the world? How could we make what's wrong with the world right? Yeah. You know, these big ultimate questions. You don't have to believe in any sort of God in order to, to be really interested in those questions. There are lots of people because actually we can't escape them. Right. Uh, when we go out and live in the world, we're actually making choices every day that reflect that we think that there are things that are right or wrong. And we all of our choices all the time are revealing that there are things that we value and there are goals we're pursuing. We have some kind of idea about what it is to lead a good human life. Everybody's trying to do this. So when we can get people to tap in and see that when we're talking about religion, we're actually talking about those questions that are deeply important to everyone. That can be a better starting point because that gets us into the realm of then asking, well, how would we answer those questions of truths about the real world? Yeah. And that everyone has to grapple with what's true about how we would answer those big questions. So I think that's a better way to think about how do we make our faith relevant? That can be a starting point. But doing that means then we're going to have to be able to grasp our faith in this really large way. Right. We're going to have to see that the biblical story actually answers all these big questions for us in a coherent way. But some we may not be used to thinking about it in those terms, you know, but but the more we we can think about, you know, big, big questions like what does the Bible say about where the whole universe came from? Yeah. And how does that compare with how other big views answer that question? You know? Yeah. And then. If you have a variety of views, just topic by topic, where did the universe come from? Where do ethics come from? When you present the conflict to people, it's like, well, why do you think your view is the better view than, say, the 1,800 other possible views? What makes you so sure? Help them to see the problem of pluralism as well. And too often we just come to it with preference. I was raised to believe that. Yeah, well, so was everybody else. I prefer this idea. Why is it better than Jesus' view? He rose from the dead. So helping people to see that you should be skeptical of the view you prefer, because mathematically, it's not likely to be the right view. (laughs) All right, let's start taking the questions. Uh, Yes, so you're talking about a lot of opportunities in conversation to delve into the text of Scripture and compare what the text says between what is thought to be believed by the individual. Often, I find personally in these conversations that that is not the fertile. And that the initial hurdle is that the person thinks something like this. You have your own personal bias. It's fine for you to believe the Bible. And they won't even get to the conversation of evaluating the validity of the text. Yeah. I had a professor actually tell me in one of my classes at university that because I'm talking about the scriptures, I'm biased. But I must have only unbiased sources, which doesn't exist. There's no such (laughs) thing as an unbiased source. But how do you change that conversation? Excellent question. Uh, What do you say, Dr. Mike Farley? How would you answer that? You know, there's no magical technique that will necessarily turn every 
person or opportunity into a great conversation. Sometimes people are simply unwilling. And that's why I think for a person who is who is that resistant and who who's who's sort of objecting at that level, you know, I think for them it becomes more important to ask questions about their own beliefs. Yeah. I, I think it would be more more important to get them to talk about how they answer some of the big religious questions. Because people in general will not will not usually contemplate taking another viewpoint seriously unless there's some kind of dissatisfaction with their own current beliefs. You know, if a person feels very confident in what they currently believe, they're they're not going to feel very inclined to go looking around for alternatives and spend or spend much time and effort doing it. Um, but if you can start to talk about maybe how there are tensions or contradictions or or things that can't be explained uh, about a person's own views, that sometimes can then begin to sort of create a more, create more of an opportunity for dialogue, for give and take. So, so I, I would want to maybe turn the conversation around, start asking about that person, if I have the opportunity to do that relationally, you know. Um, That's one of the reasons why I think it's, it's a fun curveball to ask a person like that. What do you do with this ancient text, Isaiah 52 and 53? How would you explain it then under your worldview? Like if there is no supernatural, how come it seems like it's looking just like the story right. of Jesus here, right. you know, because it's a text they have to explain too. It's a real text, real artifact of our world. And, you know, a lot of people dismiss Isaiah and his prophecies by saying it was written after the fact. It's a very plausible theory, I think. It really is. It's a plausible theory if you're an anti-supernaturalist. Here's how we explain all the supernatural looking things. But you can't do that with Jesus and Isaiah 52, 53. You just can't because we have the Dead Sea Scroll copy. Yeah. That's written, you know, some 200 years before the time of Jesus. I think more specifically on that question of like, you can only use unbiased sources. This is a very common, you know, appeal in a lot of skeptical scholarship about the Bible. They, you will find lots of claims like, we can't trust the authors of the Bible because they were writing for theological reasons. And if they're it's writing, just propaganda. And, and if they have theological reasons and motives and goals, Therefore, they can't be historical. Like theology and history, again, are in different boxes. We're almost back to the faith and reason like split in these conversations, you know. So it, it can be helpful to think about uh, examples of other kinds of writing. Uh, a very powerful counterexample would be to say, so are you saying that Jewish people can't write history about the Holocaust? They have a, they have a very clear viewpoint <laughs> about the morality of the Holocaust as they properly should. Does that moral bias mean that that Jewish people can't be trusted as sources to write about Holocaust history? Like we, we'd say, well, no. Um, in fact, what we would probably want to say is their particular experience as a community actually gives them a motive to want to tell the history accurately. You can say, in a sense, they have a bias, but in that case, their bias is actually giving them a motive to want to be truthful. And I think you could argue the same thing about, about the... Um, if I was going to talk more specifically about that accusation, I might ask, what kind of bias do you think the New Testament writers have? Right. You know, what kind of bias? Uh, and if you had their beliefs, would you think it would be okay to just make up things that were historically untrue? Because if you start to think about that question, you realize that the biases, quote unquote, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually would have made them want to care about truth. If you're a first century believing Jew, and you think that you have 
encountered the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of all that God is doing, and you think that that Messiah has called you to be his representative in sharing his word of salvation to the world, do you think that that set of beliefs is going to make you want to make stuff up? No, it's like that set of beliefs actually would want to make them be very, very careful about the truth. It's like that set of beliefs would want to make a person who believed in Jesus actually care about truth. That observation alone doesn't mean that necessarily got everything right, but at least shows that the bias can work in more than one way. The right kinds of bias can actually incline us to want to be careful and to want to be truthful as opposed to not being yeah. truthful. Uh, in this case, the bias is that these people believe their Messiah has come and they're reporting things about him. But it's not just like religiously inspiring things. It's, you know, not like I had a burning my bosom. I get that you can kind of evaluate some of those kinds of claims and say there's maybe some confirmation bias involved that you have the authentic religious experience as opposed to all the other world religion experiences. I get that. But the Christian claims are different. They're not just claiming this is subjectively helpful and interesting. They're actually making factual claims. And the question would be, are those claims true or false? If he really was a Messiah, of course they would be biased in favor of spreading that religion. That wasn't a typical objection, you know, 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, but it's a very strong objection today, and we need to, we need to face it. Yes? One of the, the most interesting things to me whenever I've shared my faith is how almost all of the disciples died defending what they believe. Yeah. But, you know, as far as having the exact sources for the truth of that, I don't know that. It's just something that's been passed on to me from others. Yeah. So could you um, talk about that a little bit? Because to me, cult leaders, you know, a lot of times a cult leader dies and then the cult kind of falls apart. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. So you're right. Some stories about the deaths of the apostles come to us from some later Christian sources. They're not in the New Testament themselves. Although we have that phenomenon in the New Testament. We have Stephen, for example, who's in Acts 7. Acts 12 says that James, the brother of John, was killed by Herod. Yeah, James is killed by them. So we do have examples of that. And, and clearly, we also have examples of them suffering immensely. Like you just think of all the, all the suffering that Paul went through uh, in all of his journeys and all that. So it does raise this question. Lots of people have died for something that was false, but almost always what's happening is they die believing it's true, that they're motivated to die for it because they believe it's true. But the skeptic who says the biblical writers simply made up these stories, what they would be claiming is these people were willing to suffer immensely and even give their lives for the sake of something that they knew was false. Yeah, Jim Jones really believed his dog. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah people will do crazy things because they believe they're true. But he didn't have a body of fiction claiming that somebody had risen from the dead when it really hadn't. Right. So that's a different thing, isn't it? Right, right. Yeah. Just saying that you're intentionally writing something that you know is false and then trying to sort of basically pull a hoax on the world uh, to try to commend that, it's very hard to hold a hoax like that together. Yeah. Um, if you, I've ever read Charles Coulson's uh, biography about his time in the Nixon White House. He talks about how they tried to hold together a certain set of lies that they were that they were trying to defend. And he said, we couldn't do it for the space of like a year or two with just a handful of highly motivated and powerful political figures. Yeah. He's like, we couldn't even pull off the little conspiracy we tried to pull off. He's like, how in the world would yeah. this group of disciples, you know, manage to convince 
the world, yeah. you know, and even be willing to go to their deaths. Um, Something that I've been paying attention to lately is the the language of the the crowds, the great crowds, the, the multitudes who are following Jesus from Syria, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, that language of the crowds. One time Luke mentions myriads of crowds, so tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. So the people in that scene, I think it's Luke 12, are trampled to death. Some people are trampled. So how do you then convince other people that this is true too if you present it that way like wouldn't everybody know that there was no famous person healing people mm-hmm. in Jerusalem Judaic now you look at the language of the book of Acts you have 3,000 on the day of Pentecost it goes to 5,000 very soon then it goes to tens of thousands that word myriads comes up in the book of Acts tens of thousands and then you start seeing churches planted all throughout the Mediterranean okay so this is growing exponentially we have confirmation, both from Christian and non-Christian sources, that, quote, innumerable multitudes of people in Rome were willing to suffer martyrdom under Nero. So Clement, a Christian writer, says this, and Tacitus, a Roman historian, says this. Okay, now think about it from Clement's perspective, okay? Clement is writing at a time, I actually argue it's pre-70 because he mentions the temple sacrifice is still going on. So Clement, I believe, is the same guy who is mentioned by Paul in Paul's letters. He was there in Corinth who would have known Paul, and Paul is claiming to do miracles. So Clement is a guy who says, we are in the same arena as Paul and the other apostles. We are being martyred. He's writing at a time when this is happening. That is stronger than anyone's claim to have a bias. This bias works in the opposite direction. They are facing torture. And they know whether Paul had been really deceiving people. Read the the epistle of Clement. It's amazing. And he talks about innumerable multitudes there in Rome. That's just one city, by the way. Innumerable multitudes of those who were caught. So there's a lot that haven't been caught. Uh, Pliny's letter to Trajan mentioned something similar at the end of the first century, that his memory, his testimony of what he's been doing, capturing the Christians asking them to recant by tortures and things. His memory goes back, he says, for a couple of decades. So it's been going on mm-hmm. for a, a while. And that's in Turkey. Okay, that's in Bithynia. This is what Jesus says would happen. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what does Jesus say in the Gospels? You're going to be going before men, and you're going to be flogged, and you're going to. some of you will be crucified. But... Receive it all as joy. Short-term prediction coming true. There you go. (laughs) But receive it all, count it all as joy. That's a very bizarre teaching that nobody had ever said that kind of thing before. Receive it as joy when you suffer on my behalf. That's part of what's baked into this gospel, being willing to suffer. This isn't something that's easily made up. If it's fiction, it's the world's most amazing fiction. Ask your skeptical friend just on the hoax theory. Isn't that worth exploring? I think this is the number one belief system in the world, Christianity. Uh, one third of the global population believes in Jesus to some extent. That's a kind of an amazing thing. What's the power of this hoax? Yeah. Why is it plausible, do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Where does it come from? Yeah. How does it arise in the first century? That's it. Okay. If, if you want to, you will say, let's assume it's not true. Right. Where did this belief actually come from? How would they have come up with these particular beliefs about Jesus in the first place? These are first century Jewish writers. How would they have come up with this belief that Jesus is not just a human king, but he's God himself? 
come to be the redeemer of the world. Where yeah. did that come from? And he rose from the dead. You know, like, well, there's only so many options. Uh, well, they could have gotten ideas from other Jewish sources. Yeah, but the, the, the Jewish sources, you know, they certainly do predict a coming king, uh, but not in all the detail about, about what they're writing about in the New Testament. And certainly Jews had beliefs about resurrection, but their belief was that there was going to be a general resurrection at the end of history. There's no Jewish source that you could have done with as much detail as the New Testament gives us to say there's going to be one man in the middle of history who's resurrected. That was not I think Isaiah that, comes pretty close. Well, Isaiah does. <laughs> but but in the first century, there were not lots of right. not lots of Jewish people in the first century saying, This is how Isaiah is going to be fulfilled. Yeah. So it was very contrary to their context. But but you also can't find these beliefs in Greek and Roman sources. And why would first century Jews be looking to Greek and Roman sources? To, right. to tell the truth about the Jewish Messiah. They believe those Gentile stories were silly. So you, if you look around and say, if they didn't get their beliefs because Jesus actually did these things, where did they get the beliefs? Yeah. Um, there's no plausible source you can turn to in the first century that they could have taken these ideas from. So asking skeptical neighbors to say, how does the Christian faith even begin? Yeah. Uh, where do the beliefs come from? If they're not, if they're not grounded in the truth, where? You know, it's actually a very hard question to answer in a way that's actually plausible. And I think that's part of our argument for yeah. for the for the truth of the resurrection it's of Jesus. Also taking the the questions of your your neighbors seriously, so you're engaging with them. So you had something else you wanted to add? If it was such a lie, how did they pull off the most fantastic yeah. marketing plan right. in the history yeah. of the world? Yeah. <laughs> yes. A group of like moderately educated Jewish, you know, kind of uh middle class people, you know, who don't have any power. How do they do that? You know? Yeah, it's it's mind boggling. So this is probably like a lazy student question, uh, maybe. <laughs> but we've mentioned a little bit about there's sort of a deluge of information. You know, you have people like Art Erman you mentioned. Yep. Um, you have like Discovery Channel specials by secular uh, scholars who basically say, well, this is what Christianity says, and here's why it's wrong. But I don't feel like a lot of times there's a good solid background and foundation of why what they're saying is incorrect without going through seminary or becoming yeah. a yeah. yeah, right. You know, like he had the couple of episodes of David Roll, a Egyptologist, that were like mind blowing to me because I just didn't know some of the evidence he pointed yeah. to in his theories on the pharaohs and whatnot. But how can like a layperson, for instance, find these sources or find reliable because i also think sometimes i've seen videos of biblical archaeology that kind of go whack-a-doodle yeah yeah right do you have any recommendation for evaluating or seeking these kind of discernment is the key word right you got to be discerning and you got to ask good questions and you got to be a researcher and that's one of the things i'm trying to do with the humble skeptic is to give people access to some of the quality stuff that's out there uh and i'm trying to make it accessible so a lot of times Really good scholarship is, you know, written by the Oxford or Cambridge guy. And most people don't have access to that kind of thing. And they're not going to read a book that's this thick. All they know is the Discovery Channel summary. And they're interviewing really schlocky guys who don't know what they're talking about. Happens again and again and again. Do you have anything you want to add here? Yeah, I mean, there are certain podcasts you can listen to. Uh, Gavin Ortland's podcast, Truth Unites, is an, is another example of that. Um, John Dixon's Undeception is got really very cool. accessible things. There are some actually short books. I mean, I hear what you're saying. How do I do this if I'm not going to spend like five years reading academic tomes? You're like, you know, most people can do that, and that's fine. There are books written like this that aren't terribly long. Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams? He's a, 
uh, Cambridge, re- Cambridge, you know, researcher. I mean, but, I think the the best kinds of apologetic works, I think, are the resources that are written by the people who actually do the academic work. You know, you really want to try to find, and you can ask pastors and others to kind of give you recommendations, but try to find the people who actually do the academic work and then kind of translate it into a simpler form. Yeah. You know, like this would be an excellent example of, of that kind of book. It's not very long. It's written pretty easily. Peter Williams, Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, another one I really like that is even a little bit broader than this is a book called Why I Trust the Bible by William Mounts, M-O-U-N-C-E. I mean, a great deal of what we've said tonight, you could get from those two really short books. Yeah. Another book I really like is um, John Dixon's book, Is Jesus History? It's one yep. of these very small, thin, light books like yep. that. Is Jesus History? His podcast, Undeceptions, is really- Oh, yes. Excellent. Very artfully, tastefully done. He has a PhD from a like a, like a secular research yeah. university in history. Like yeah. He's an actual ancient historian yeah. uh, by training, and uh, and he teaches at Wheaton College now, so he's, he's very- I've interviewed him before. I'm thinking about re-releasing that on my uh, podcast because it was such a good interview. But he also has the same view of faith, that faith is completely misunderstood in our time, and it only has been misunderstood for about the last 150 years. The English word is the problem. It doesn't mean what most people think it means. You heard it in the secular college campus interviews that faith is just this thing that is not evidence-based, and that's where I think we should be skeptical. You got to be discerning, just like Paul said. Yeah. Do you think there was an inflection point that made that pivot to uh, people thinking that the Bible is just stories? Uh, yeah. Is there a defining rule with history or has it just been erosion over the years? Was there like a, a big event that caused that mindset shift? Yeah. Or has it just happened? How would you answer that? Uh, I mean, that's a long story. It doesn't happen just in a single moment. You know, you start to have scholars in the... 17th and 18th centuries, um, who we now associate with what's called the deist tradition, basically believing that there's a creator God. There were, there, there were a group of scholars who were, were very frustrated by Christians who were fighting each other, Protestants and Catholics who were fighting each other in the 17th century. Uh, there were horrible wars that were happening on the European continent. Now, it wasn't all because of religion, but religion was wrapped up in it. You know, there were Protestant countries and Catholic countries and kings and, and, and it was, religion was all wrapped up. in it. There were certain people who said, wow, the Christians not only can't agree with each other, th- this is producing like continent wide conflict, all right, and warfare over this disagreement. Maybe we need to take a step back and try to find some other foundation for truth, because if the Christians can't all agree about what the Bible says, then maybe we need another foundation for truth altogether. And, and so this is where the philosophy of Rene Descartes comes from, because he wants to step back and say, I need another foundation for certainty. And, and he tries to ground it in his own reflection philosophically about the world and so forth. So th- there's kind of a trajectory that starts there that says maybe science and the methods of natural science and philosophy are a better foundation for truth than, than what we've received from the Bible. Um, and it sort of arises out of the context of Christian conflict after the Reformation period. This is the same time when the scientific revolution is happening, and it was very impressive at the rapid advance that scientific discoveries were making. You know, so science, natural science appears to be highly successful, a highly trustworthy foundation for knowledge, you know, but all this stuff about history and tradition and scripture seems like it just leads to endless conflict that nobody can agree about. Science gives us truth, right? Uh, Religion gives us 
warfare and conflict and superstition and and other. so so it kind of emerges from that contrast um it's not that you know um this didn't happen overnight but this is kind of the seeds of it that doubt really only existed in the 17th and 18th centuries amongst mostly a group of intellectuals you know um it doesn't really start to to move out into the broader world until the 19th and 20th centuries um in part because eventually their skepticism about about scripture kind of becomes a whole approach to biblical scholarship that comes through German universities, especially in yeah, the 19th century. German. And so it was especially German research universities who sort of took on this, this whole approach to what we would call a more theologically liberal approach to viewing scripture non-miraculously. That, that's where it sort of became an assumption that stories about miracles can't be historical. Now, that, that's, those are philosophical reasons, but that sort of philosophy begins to sort of shape. And the German universities in the 19th century were probably the greatest research universities in the world. So it was part of their academic prestige that led to them influencing a great deal of what happened in universities all over the world, including England and America. You know, that, that it begins to make its way into seminary training, pastor training. It, and so it eventually kind of begins to filter its way down into churches and, and the broader culture. So by the early 20th century, it kind of bursts onto the public in a bigger way. There are bigger conflicts over like the fundamentalist modernist yes. controversy. Yeah. Denominations are splitting, you know, over a lot of these different ways of viewing the reliability of the Bible. You know, so it took like three centuries, but eventually it sort of yeah. filters down to, to the churches. Most of the time when you talk about the Enlightenment, people talk about faith and reason as if they're two different things, right? Faith versus reason or faith versus science often. So what is science? Well, the word science is just the word in Latin, scientia, for knowledge. You can see this easily when you look at the word omniscience. It's omniscience. Now think about the language you find in the Exodus and in the language of Jesus. So that you may know I have the power to forgive sins. That's language from Jesus when the paralytic is going to be healed. It's knowledge, not just a leap of faith. It's so that you may know. And then that language is also there in the Exodus story, so that you may know that I am the God who will liberate you, Exodus 9. And, and then there's also that language of, so that you may believe in the Exodus account. That's also language from Jesus, so that you may believe that I am the one. You know, if you don't believe me, Jesus will say, look at the works that I do. So belief and knowledge are not two different things in the Bible. Faith and knowledge, faith and reason, faith and evidence are hand in hand. And that's where I think at some point we made a wrong turn. Yeah. Any last comments you want to make? I, I do wanted to recommend a couple of other books that kind of start, you know, we, I recommended a couple of books about the history, uh, the history arguments about why we can trust the Bible as historically reliable. Um, some other books that kind of start where Paul starts in Athens, that sort of book, one I would recommend is called a Good and True Story by Paul Gould, G-O-U-L-D, where he basically looks at a whole lot of those more ultimate kind of religion questions and asks, is it reasonable to believe in a creator who, who created the universe? Is it reasonable to believe that there are moral, absolute truths in the world? Is it reasonable to believe what Christianity says about human hope and desires and purpose and morality and on all these other sort of broader questions? in which Christianity makes a great deal of sense of our own experience in the world. So A Good and True Story by Paul Gould. Um, Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity, another very accessible, not a long book. She's a very a kind of up and coming, very uh, effective writer, apologist. 
confronting Christianity. And then, of course, Tim Keller's book, uh, Reason for God. Reason for God, yeah. Uh, it's also another excellent book of that sort, where we're sort of looking at broader religious questions. Can we believe that there's a God? Uh, how does that relate to the natural science? Yeah. You know, those kinds of questions um, that are kind of in the background. When we talk about history, we're, we're, we're all approaching history with a kind of larger philosophy about nature and the world. Uh, and so some of these books would help you get at those bigger questions. One more book recommendation I'll give you, actually two, uh, Lydia McGrew, Hidden in Plain View, and her recent book, Testimonies to the Truth. Both those books do a really good job of just kind of, let's slow down and look at the details in the Gospels themselves. Do these have the marks of authenticity or not? You know, you're looking at a painting, is this a Van Gogh or is it not? That's the category. So you're not just going to dismiss them because they're biased. Maybe we should give some respect to the 1. or 2. billion people who believe this Jesus guy. All right, let's look at the documents carefully and closely. Those are really, really helpful books. They're very easy to read. Uh, she has other thick books that are, you know, more scholarly works, but those are accessible. folks, thanks for joining me for this edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. If you'd like to check out some of the books that Mike and I recommended during this program, you can find them in the show notes at humbleskeptic.com. That's humbleskeptic.com. We've also added a few other recommended books and resources that will help you to explore this topic further, including information about my own forthcoming book. As I mentioned at the beginning of this program, if you have a question that you'd like me to try to answer on a future episode, you can either email me at info at humbleskeptic.com or you can record your question in your own voice using the voice memo feature of your smartphone. Please remember that the Humble Skeptic Podcast is listener-supported and that I can really use your help. You can find some of the giving options at humbleskeptic.com. That's humbleskeptic.com, and I look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Thank you.